You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, today we've got an action-packed program. (laughs) Uh, It's all right, just relax. I know, it's Saturday morning. And only the really frisky ones are awake at this time of day. But anyway, we are podcasts, so you can catch up later. Uh, Fascinating levels of shamelessness and self-interest being displayed by the federal libs during the lead-up to the next federal election. Tuesday, you'll remember, is the federal budget and uh, the election that hasn't been called yet will happen within six weeks of that budget, apparently. And the Grubs have been scanning the landscape for touchstone issues that the electorate is concerned about, things like environment and refugees and flood relief, to name a few. And so they're doing what they always do and are putting on some good clothes to put up a false front to their neoliberal Banana Republic pro-war machine government. Uh, while still dragging their feet in distributing funds to flood-affected people in New South Wales and Queensland. In fact, even Liberals are calling foul for the apparent discrimination against areas that fail to vote Liberal federally, which is very un-Australian, or as someone I know would say, very un-Christian, but it's probably very un-every other religion as well. Anyway, uh more astonishing and craven is perhaps the announcement of the deal with New, New Zealand to release refugees. This is after nine years of the cruelty that's been, uh, the screws that have been uh, turned to uh, uh, blight the lives of people who had the temerity to come to Australia by boat and call for refugee status, put in jail for no crime, uh, wasted lives, and probably... Uh, this is uh, part of the shamelessness, uh, more strength to the refugee advocates and the refugees themselves for making the imprisoning of refugees an issue that the swine in federal parliament think it could give them some votes if they actually relaxed some of their uh, grim uh, 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 systemic uh, cruelty that's been going on in the refugee area. Um, but... Let's hear a little bit from Ian Rimdoll, who's from the. Uh, uh, he he's a, a refugee advocate, and uh, he's p- part of the Refugee Action Co- Coalition. Because uh, what we've discovered with the Liberal Feds at the moment is that uh, they say one thing; it's a um, 
uh, a splatter gun effect with a headline and then you have to read the fine print to see if any of what they're saying is actually what you think they're saying. So uh, what is uh, so the people who actually drill down in this, and Ian's one of them, uh, what it means is that 100 refugees in Australia will make up the 150 who will go to New Zealand over the next year. And he says this is good news for the 51 people transferred from PNG and Nauru who are still in the Park Hotel and other detention centres in Australia. So, of course, it is always good. But um, the uh, huge hole in the agreement, apparently, is the exclusion of refugees and asylum seekers in PNG. They have arguably suffered even worse torture than those on Nauru, and there is no excuse for Australian government excluding those they illegally sent to Manus Island. Uh, the uh, deal, which he says, Ian says, uh, is welcome news for people in limbo in Nauru. The deal only highlights the absurdity of Australia's refusal to resettle those they sent to PNG in Nauru in 2013. Under the deal, refugees in Nauru and some from Nauru and PNG already in Australia will be eligible to be resettled in New Zealand. Those who are settled in New Zealand will then be able to return to Australia. There are only about 40 people in Nauru who will be eligible. Many are engaged with the US or Canada. So obviously it's something that's... uh, It's it's a, a lifeline for some people. So that can't be uh, dismissed and it obviously is, as I said, a great thing that the pressure that's been applied has actually um, changed the minds of these shameless people because they think that there's some votes in it. But uh, their character has not changed. However, there is other news that um, should be considered uh, today. There's some pretty uh, sad news going on in England around um, WikiLeaks uh, founder uh, Julian Assange. Uh, Well, a piece of happy news in one respect that he's going to marry his long-term, or he did a couple, two days ago, he uh, married his long-term partner Stella Morris inside a high-security prison in south-east London at a small ceremony attended by four guests, two official witnesses and two guards. However, um, on the 14th of March, you may not have caught up, he, his, uh, uh, his, um, he was denied permission to appeal to the UK Supreme Court against moves to extradite him to the United States where the court... Uh, and it's been... Um, uh, it, the High Court overturned the lower court's decision saying that uh, the US promises were enough to guarantee that Assange would be treated humanely. They said that they couldn't extradite him because it was a a, a, um, a risk to his health. However, uh, without looking at the uh, evidence that uh, the US government hadn't actually uh, Proved any case against um, Julian Assange at all for um, espionage and also the fact that he's not an American citizen. Uh, so many, so many legal things, but uh, they then, uh, the court then uh, held on to this shred of uh, um, around uh, his uh, health. 
rather than actually inspecting the political nature of this uh, these false charges. A dangerous precedent. Uh, so, of course, now what's happened is that the case is now expected to be formally sent to the British Home Secretary for approval, after which Assange can try to challenge this decision by a judicial review. A judicial review involves a judge examining the legitimacy of a public body's decision. It's all pretty foul stuff. Uh, there's a lot at stake a lot of um, freedom of speech and freedom of journalism and the uh, actual usefulness of the fourth estate is actually on trial. But then again, just like the uh, refugee issue, we've got a, a single person who's actually having to take the brunt of the uh, corruption of our system uh, and his family of course. Uh, there's a film coming up uh, that is actually uh, looking at, uh, it's a sort of a day-to-day account of what's been happening for Julian Assange on the outside, or the fight. It's uh, Itaka, I-T-H-A-K-A, Itaka, is, it will be released uh, very shortly. It's a fascinating film. Um, the uh, uh, the next thing, of course, is uh, moving on to the environment, which is also another touchdown issue for our Fed Libs, uh, because, of course, no, uh, it's uh, um, all party, everybody in Australia is actually concerned about the environment. Even there's a very small percentage of people who actually believe that they're the bullshit, that uh, there is no problem with uh, the environment, especially after the the mammoth floods, I'll have to say. But anyway, uh, so of course they've got to look like they're doing something leading into the election. Um, however, I thought it might be worthwhile getting a little, taking um, a little bit of a word from uh, George Mobiot, who is actually um, uh, English-based. And uh, the reason for why uh, I I think it's quite interesting is because uh, uh, when we listen to a little bit of what uh, Mobiot's got to say. Uh, uh, we should uh, watch to see how long the great Boris's answers to environmental disaster will be on the lips of our fearless leader. Uh, and this, of course, uh, follows the school climate strike, which was held on Friday, um, where uh, young people are getting out into the streets demanding that uh, something should be done, despite the uh, decision in our highest court that uh, the uh, environment. Minister has no duty of care to the young of Australia when it makes decisions around these issues. Anyway, this is from uh, George Mobiot's uh, blog. You can get on to his uh, work by going to his uh, to mobiot.com. That's M-O-N-B-I-O-T dot com. Anyway, while all eyes were on another horror, our war against the living world went nuclear. Over the weekend, temperatures at some weather stations in the Arctic rose to 30 degrees Celsius above normal. Simultaneously, at certain weather stations in the Antarctica, they hit 40 degrees Celsius above normal. Two events, albeit off the scale, do not make a trend. But as part of a gathering record of extreme and chaotic weather, these unprecedented simultaneous anomalies are terrifying. 
On their heels came news of another horrific event, mass coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef during a La Nina year. La Nina is the cool phase of the Pacific cycle. Until now, widespread bleaching had happened only during the warmer El Nino years. The uh, likely impacts of the next El Nino are too awful to contemplate. We knew that climate breakdown would happen abruptly. Earth systems that seem stable, lives that seem safe, would slip from under us. All that we took for granted would suddenly be in play. It could be happening now. A characteristic of complex systems is that it's hard to tell how close to their critical thresholds they may be until they have been crossed. Are we now passing the tipping points? The only rational response is to act as if it is not too late and as if we have the briefest of opportunities to stabilise the system before it slides. Instead, as if to announce its intention to push us past the point of no return, the UK government floated plans to cut fuel duty this week. Since the COP26 climate summit last November, it, is, it has approved one new oil and gas field in the North Sea and proposes to approve six more. A paper published yesterday by Dr Dan Cavallet uh, and Professor Kevin Anderson at the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research shows that to permit just a 50% chance of staying within 1.5 Celsius degrees Celsius of heating, rich nations need to end all oil and gas production by 2034. In other words, just as these new concessions start to deliver, they will need to be closed down. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in parliament and on the streets, and all the while our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working-class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And before we get on to the meat and potatoes of the program, I thought I might let you know that uh, we're going to do a couple of... uh, 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 Well... The, the first up, we're going to listen to a little uh, chat I had with uh, Angelo Gioge, uh, who's the um, Italian Cultural Institute uh, director. Um, you probably didn't know we had an Italian Cultural Institute in Melbourne. But the reason for why I um, hunted him out was because they're, they're going to uh, – uh, they, they are um, running a program uh, – 
a Pasolini ex, uh, retrospective, and it's going to be shown at the Astor. Now, Pasolini is an absolutely uh, fascinating filmmaker and uh, communist, uh, perhaps uh, homosexual, um, not not uh, important except for the fact that he was murdered in rather grisly um, uh, way and uh, the murder was never really investigated uh, very thoroughly, uh, which uh, sort of... Uh, um, but, but his filmmaking is just extraordinary and uh if you're into it and you have a uh a perspective on um social uh um uh life uh it's probably if you have not seen any Pasolini films it may be worth your while anyway so I, I, I sought out Angelo and uh, he gave me a little bit of an understanding of why they are doing what they're doing and uh, a little bit about the retrospective. Can you first tell my listeners about the Italian Institute of Culture? And, uh, the Institute has operated in South Chiaga for more than 60 years and uh, among the things that uh, the foreign minister uh, deals with, there is also the so-called the cultural diplomacy that uh, is the maintenance of good relations with uh, other countries through the promotion and the organization of cultural activities of various kinds, uh, including the dissemination of Italian language. Uh, so we can say that the Italian Cultural Institute is for Italy as the British Council if it's for the UK or the Getty Institute for the German, the Institut Francais for France, or the Cervantes for Spain. Uh, there are 83 Italian cultural institutes, uh, 18 in America, uh, including five in the United States, eight in Africa, 15 in Asia, and two in Australia, in Sydney and Melbourne, and the others in Europe. They were created in uh, 1926, uh, both for diplomatic reasons to maintain a link with many Italians who immigrated in the previous decades, but almost uh, all of them were op- opened after the Second World War. Oh, very interesting. And so uh, the uh, Pasolini uh, uh, retrospective, which uh, you have uh, helped put together at the Astor in April, is part of raising people's awareness of Italian culture and its importance. Exactly. And uh, why now? Because the year 2022 marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of this great uh, intellectual uh, who was also a writer, a poet, a, poet, a painter, a screenwriter and a filmmaker, movie director. So um, Pasolini's films were quite uh, breathtaking and groundbreaking, weren't they? Yeah, they are. They are. Um, maybe it's better to let the people know who was Pasolini. Okay, tell me. Yeah, because uh, I, it, he was a complex personality, very often provocative and full of uh, original intuition. He was a very fruitful artist. And his production is some way marked uh, by the dilemma between the instinctive ancestors' call to peasant tradition and an effort of uh, rationalization simulated by discovery of the Marxism and the human science. Uh, 
So Pasolini was an intellectual who knew, and we say that now, but not then, who knew to think uh, with his own head just at the moment when many other intellectuals were doing it with the party cards in their pockets. Pasolini was killed uh, in the night between the 1st and the 2nd of November 75 in the Ostia Seafront, and his body was found the next morning on a bumpy road. And uh, it was immediately clear that Pasolini had been the victim of a particularly brutal attack. Uh, and almost, uh, almost 50 years after his death, he is still remembered by 80% of young people in Italy, and not only in Italy, the same young people who are involved when it comes to mentioning the fall of values, the emptiness of television production, the prevailing consumerism, things that Pierpaolo Pasolini himself had warned about. Uh, Pasolini had uh, uh, a great desire for solitude. Why? Why? Uh, we can answer to this question with the word of Giovanni Testori, which, uh, uh, who remembered him in an article just after his death. The article, it was uh, at risk of his life. The, the title is already as his meaning. And uh, uh, everything has been written about Pasolini, atrocious death. Uh, but we don't know why he meant that. No, no one uh, talked about this. Uh, no one uh, talked about uh, what drove him in the evening or at night to want and seek uh, those kinds of encounters with other men. The answer here is very complex, but uh, it can agglomerate, I believe, in a single note and a single name. The consciousness and the anguish of being divided, of being only a part of a unity, which from the moment of conception does not it have existed anymore. In short, Pasolini had the awareness and the anguish of being born and of the loneliness that fatally derives from it. So this was Pasolini. And um, how he influenced our uh, filmmaking? Uh, this is another uh, question, very important and very difficult, because uh, if the neorealism had freed the film from the Aristotelian cage of the classic tale by founding the poetics of modern cinema, Pasolini, uh, at the beginning of the 60s, brings the Italian cinema back to the domain of mythos starting a notorial path that from the first movie, Acatone, in 61, it went down to Salò in 75. So the Pasolini cinematographic corpse is very dense, it's complex and a problematic world. The uh, retrospective uh, is going to cover quite a number of films. Yes, so the retrospective cover uh, uh, more than 70 movies, so not only Pasolini, movies, but also of other directors who inspired Pasolini, who were inspired by Pasolini. So people can uh, go to the Astor during April. Uh, can they buy tickets uh, just for particular showings or will they also be able to uh, buy tickets for a season? Okay, the retrospective we start at the 1st of April with uh, the premiere of uh, Mamma Roma, which has been restored and it has been screened only in Berlin. 
So it will be the first premiere uh, outside Europe in the world here in Melbourne. And it will last until the 25th of May. So we have a two months of uh, Pasolini retrospective. You can buy the tickets on the Astor Cinema, even online, uh, for one movie, or I think also for groups of movies, because we divided this retrospective in uh, five sections with the different uh, subjects. Okay, what are the different subjects? Yeah, we have a five, I was saying that we have a five section. The first is the cinema of cruelty, and the second is uh, outskirts of the world. The third one, uh, I think, is eroticism, aversion, and merchandise. And then we have the reinvention of the meat, and then the Christ of the last. Okay, great. All right, sounds fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to me today. <laughs> Thank you to you. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Mitchell from Cut Copy, and you're listening to 3CR. Please support Community Radio. Subscribe now. FreeCR's Trans Day of Audibility is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2022 Trans Day of Visibility. Tune in on Sunday the 27th of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender-diverse voices bring the noise to the Western gender binary. We'll be bringing you shows covering art, culture, politics and everyday transgender lives towards a transgender day of audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au slash transday of audibility 2022. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to move on to another film which is uh, Take Heart, Deadly Heart. It uh, was uh, shown uh, on the uh, Fed Square as part of uh, um, uh, Tuesday, March uh, the 15th. They, it was also at uh, Cinema Nova. But there are other ways of seeing it. It's uh, part of the closing the gap on rheumatic heart disease, the silent killer of Indigenous children. And I had the great opportunity to talk to one of the producers, Vicky Wade, who's a Noongar woman. Uh, she's also one of the writers. And uh, it's an important tale that uh, we should all be uh, aware of. This is the second film, and uh, it's part of a campaign, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's a second film. The first film was in 2016, and that raised awareness. Uh, we took that film and some trailers of that film, we took it down to Parliament House, and Ken White was the Minister of Indigenous Affairs then, so he he watched it, and Linda Burney was in the audience, Mick uh, Dodson... Uh, Senator uh, Malandiri was there. So there was a good uh, show of Aboriginal ministers there on the, in the 2016 launch uh, and the subsequent parliamentary meeting. Uh, we took a family from Maningrida down, so it was really good to have somebody there to tell the lived experience, to tell the stories of what it means to them for you know, their children to have rheumatic heart disease. And uh, the Brown family you'll see in the 2000 and... Um, the 22 film, the film we've just launched, is that they lost a child. Um, she was only, I think she was three or four. But it follows their, that family through and it follows uh, four other uh, families that we had in the 2016. So it's like a sequel and it's a follow-on through. But the 
the thing that's different with this film, and which I think makes a big difference, is that it had a Aboriginal direct co-director, uh, Lorraine White. Uh, she's from, oh, well, she's working in the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School, and myself as co-producer, Aboriginal woman from West Australia. So it had that cultural lens on it, and it really, really was powerful in terms of storytelling and telling the story. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... In the past, rheumatic fever, and this is, I mean, you call it rheumatic heart disease, but rheumatic, mm. rheumatic fever was a really big deal in all communities, but now it's only mm. for Indigenous communities. Mm. Yeah, in the 50s and 60s, there were whole wards of, uh, of those that, and they used to call it rheumatic fever, so there was whole wards of, of people with rheumatic fever, and I've got a friend who, her and her sister got it, and... They remember having uh, cages over their legs because their legs were so painful. So what what acute rheumatic fever gives you is pain, really painful joints. We've had some of our uh, champions for change, which is a group that I you know have developed in rheumatic heart disease. And some of them they were they were so sore that they had to get on skateboards to get around the house. That's how sore their joints were. But this was yeah around about the 50s and 60s when. Living conditions weren't as good as they are now in mainstream Australia. Kevin Rudd uh, is one of those that were affected and has had his valve uh, surgery. But now it's only probably uh, close to 90% only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So the majority of people are those that are living remotely. Although, you know, having said that, there are Aboriginal people that live regionally and in Sydney, not just in the remote areas that have uh, rheumatic heart disease. And as your film turn, uh, points out, this is a disease of poverty, right? Yes, yes. So what it is, it's a disease of, of poverty, of overcrowding, of environmental factors, like there's no proper uh, what we call health hardware. So, you know, your refrigerator mightn't work properly your taps, your plumbing aren't working in your house. So the environment, the housing and the environment that you live in, the acute rheumatic fever, which is just a streptococcus, so it's a, a strep, strep bug which lives in the back of the throat predominantly but can be skin sore. And these are the environments where that bug likes to live. And for some reason, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have an abnormal autoimmune response. So they'll get this strep A bug and what will happen is their body then starts to fight off the bug. But in doing so, it fights off good tissues. So you get your sore joints. You can get a thing called chorea uh, where you get jerky movements. And But um, uh, the worst thing is that it, it affects the valves of the heart. And once these are affected, they don't um, repair themselves. So if you have... Repeated attacks of acute rheumatic fever, worsening valve. Often, you know, we'll have 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 6-year-olds having to go to have valve surgery. Yeah, yeah. And as your your film is, uh, it's a call to arms, isn't it, really? Because you're making it yeah. quite clear that actually it's a society's responsibility to ensure that people are not living in conditions that are um, undermining their health in a situation that's life-threatening but is absolutely uh, possible, you know, it, it's avoidable. That's right, exactly right. So 
it is a call to arms. We want action. We want um, every Australian to say this is not acceptable. These are uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who, you know, lived on the land first. They're living in these conditions now. And we don't want to live in houses that aren't working. Uh, we don't want to continually go to funerals. Uh, and we don't want our kids to be sick. So it's not a lifestyle choice. A lot of these people living remotely, that's their country and that's where ancestors are, which is very important for Aboriginal people, uh, that they're connected to country and connected to where their ancestors are. So it's not, it, it, it's not a lifestyle choice. I think what happens is that they get neglected. So if you have a look at uh, 250 years of colonisation, this is what happened. I'd I, I call it the pointy end of colonisation because 250 plus years of neglect, of discrimination, um, policies that have uh, not allowed uh, Aboriginal people to uh, have education. My grandmum was 70 years old before she uh, went back, went to school to learn just how to sign her name. She was denied education. And all these policies, past policies of discrimination, and we know that there's been, you know, social engineering, genocide, they've all... They've all worked against Aboriginal people to to live the life that they should do. I mean, it's a basic human right to be able to get good health care and to be able to live the best life you can. And it's it's a national shame. So, yes, we are calling all Australians to back behind us, to go to your local member and ask them what their rheumatic heart disease strategy is, to get onto our website, www dot takeheartrhd.com uh, have a look at the there's a trailer there's a 30 minute film there's the 80 minute movie length film and you can host a screening so if you're in a school or if you're in an organization where you think you know you want to share this with your colleagues please host a, a screening we've got over 80 screenings happening across australia now so there's been a lot of interest yeah, well, it's a very strong uh, story t told from the point of view of uh, First Nations people themselves. So, mm. I mean, people mm. are—it's it, very strong. This film. Yeah, and and what it does too, unlike the Four Corners, the Four Corners showed the, um, you know, the the three women in Dulmaji, but really Yvette, uh, which was which was a horrible story, but it didn't show the communities that are have got leadership that are taking now control. Uh, they've been empowered. They've, they've got self-determination. They're sick of their children being sick, so they're doing stuff. So in Manangrita, for example, the community, the traditional owners, the elders, the school teaching, the Lura school, language school, the health clinic, the nurse, is a, uh, a nurse that goes to the school, they all combined... To, to do a six-week, and Rheumatic Heart Disease Australia helped uh, develop a six-week course in language. So up in Manangrida, which has got the highest rates of acute rheumatic fever in the world, uh, they're learning about the strep and the germs that causes, you know, your heart to be sick in language and what they can do to prevent. So we, uh, one child went to the school nurse and said, look, um, I brought my friend because my friend's got a school store. We don't want them to get that sick heart. So empowering, empowering community through a whole of community 
mobilisation, uh, empowerment, elevating Aboriginal voices, uh, um, pretty much like the, the Close the Gap theme this year was transforming power, voices for generational change. So really this is what we need. We need a groundswell of um, sort of grassroots movement, get everyone in Australia saying this is not acceptable, then communities help them mobilise because they've got the leadership, they've got the solution, and then uh, other Aboriginal leadership lobbying with governments and, um, you know, those that will listen really to, to create change. Yeah, and get and get people's rights. And and I noticed the emblem on your shirt in the film, Aboriginal Health in Aboriginal Hands. Yes, yes, and that's exactly right. I mean, we, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of goodwill, there's a lot of people with the solutions, but they do need support too, so they need to rely on non-Aboriginal people to help support them. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's across agencies, it's housing, it's education, all get uh, behind your Aboriginal communities and help them um, out. I think with this, you know, they've got the solutions, but they need help to make sure uh, all their solutions, all their leadership uh, comes to fruition. How did you get to make the film? Where did the money come from? Did the, what, how did that happen? No Foundation and the Aspen Foundation, um, Mugu, there are a couple of like silver sponsors couple of gold sponsors. So these are people that are philanthropic organisations or such as Aspen Foundation, so Aspen Medical, um, a couple of other people that have got together saying that they want to uh, help uh, put money towards because it's such a great cause. So the money hasn't come from uh, government. It hasn't come from um major things come from a handful of really, really committed people that have been committed since 2016. Uh, the Snow Foundation have been, and the Aspen Foundation are the key people. They've been absolutely wonderful in uh, providing some of the uh, funding and the they're not actors, so we're not paid actors. These are real people in the community. What we do is give back to the community. We say to the community, what do you want now, you know? Thank you because your knowledge has been shared. What do you want? And most of the community say, well, they want this to be seen across the world. They want the world to see this. And that's all they're asking for. And, uh, you know, yeah, so it's good. Just to finish off, do you want to repeat the, um, the where people can uh, find out about the uh, hosting or um, screening? Mm. So please get behind us and promote and host a screen, uh, www.takeheartrhd, all one word, dot com. Good on you. Thanks very much for talking to me. Yep, thank you. Bye. Bye. Don't make the woman cry. Don't make the woman doubt. Don't make the woman cry. Don't make the woman doubt. Woman is the best thing that happened to the world. Woman create harmony. Woman bring the joy. Woman bring the happiness. Oh, but woman, don't believe what I say. You have got it all. Oh, younger woman, don't you doubt. You are beautiful. Oh, the woman, 
done to you, darling. You have done it all. Oh, man. Done to you, darling. You have got it all. Don't let the woman cry. Don't let the woman down. Woman is a bad thing that happened to the world. Woman created harmony. Woman bring the joy. Woman bring the happiness. Oh, black woman. Don't believe what they say. You have got it all. Hi, I'm Nova Paris and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong. You have a smile that brings a tear to my eye. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to go to something closer to home. We're going to have a chat with uh, Andrea Whitcomb from the uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners. G'day, Andrea. How are you? Oh, good day, Annie. I'm good, thank you. So you had a wake for the uh, gardens the other week. Tell us about it. Yes, we did last Sunday. Oh, it was actually a lovely celebration of the community, really, of of gardeners. We came together last Sunday at around 11.30 and we all, we constructed this wonderful cornucopia of fruit and vegetables and flowers in front of a lovely um, sign done, a drawing done by one of the plotters, uh, Bronnie Handfield, who's an illustrator of children's books. And she created this wonderful uh, drawing um, of the of the plots, and so we sort of constructed really this little memorial, and we had some speeches, and we had a barbecue picnic lunch together. We all brought different things from our kind of food traditions, I guess. I made some pastéis natas and custard tarts for dessert because I was born in Portugal, so I did something from my background. And other people did things from their backgrounds and, you know, their favourite foods. And we put it all together. And we had two, two and a half hours together talking, reminiscing and just being us. It was it was really, really nice and just sort of bringing the community that was the gardens together. It's quite a shocking outcome uh, uh, for a garden that has been operating for over 40 years for the... Uh, Collingwood uh, Children's Farm uh, Committee to decide uh, without real consultation. What what has your group learnt about the uh, process of consultation in inverted commas? Oh, Annie, that's a that's a tough one. I think what they've done is very brutal. Um, I think they thought that if they cleared the gardens, that would be it, and we would just simply disappear which is not the case. I think that what we have learned is a rather bitter lesson that you don't trust words, you only look at actions. I think we were naive in thinking that if um, you had a process of consultation that that was for real. Um, 
what we should have learnt, what we should have learnt was that you never give up public campaigning once you get to a process of consultation. We campaigned to, at the beginning because they wouldn't talk to us and refused every... After telling us that we were locked out and that they were going to clear the gardens, we, of course, tried to make contact and get an answer and get a conversation going. They just simply refused. Nina Simons, the um, president of um, the committee, just simply refused to engage with us. Connor, the manager of the gardens, wouldn't talk to us. And so we started campaigning, which is not unreasonable. That put political pressure on Richard Wynne. Richard Wynne asked Dwelp, um, Dick Ford from Dwelp, who's the sort of top manager of Crown Lands, to mediate a conversation. Three members of us, three members of theirs, were brought to that consultation. And at that point, we made our first mistake. We stopped campaigning, believing that that mediating process would get us somewhere. Well, the point that it got to, to after six months was that we would go away and do a management plan for how we would run the gardens and present it back to them at the end of the summer holiday at the beginning of February. We were called into that meeting. We had our management plan, which we had sent before. Well, Dwelp didn't turn up. Com was the Connor and two members of the committee of management were there to tell us that they just had got $870,000 from Lily D'Ambrosio's department, go away, we're clearing and building a new garden. And you will be consulted along with the rest of the community in due course. So they had a, it was a fait accompli. So that's a big lesson, isn't it? And it's a very big lesson. Never give up campaigning. Never give up the political pressure on the local MP. Never. It's interesting because it's a, it's a classic case of speaking with a forked tongue, isn't it? That's right. I mean, you know, looking back, of course, you can always see things with hindsight. I think what we're doing now, Annie, is that we, we actually haven't gone away and, and given up. Of course, it's much harder because the, the, the gardens that were with that 43-year history have gone. But what we've come to realise, I kind of always thought it's really interesting because I'm actually a heritage um, professional in in a way. I'm an academic in, in heritage studies, and I I always thought that once the gardens are physically gone, that's it. That, you know what I was fighting for would be gone. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that actually that's not true. Even though even though physically those specific gardens are gone, the interesting thing, and you know, I learned that through the wake in a way, and through all this campaigning that we've been doing together. The community is actually stronger now because we've we've lost, we were fighting for something that we suddenly realised we could lose, which we have lost. But in the fight, the community is actually bonded and become stronger. And what we have together is actually called intangible heritage. Yes, the tangible is gone, but all our the community hasn't gone. The um, intangible heritage of all the gardening knowledge that we each had in our bodies hasn't gone and the the kind of traditions of sharing hasn't gone we demonstrated that in the wake so the things that so as long as we remain strong we can still remain a community 
Well, you've called a, a community meeting. You, you, you've that's right. Yeah. So tell us about the community meeting that's been called. So, we, so our next action really is um, we're sort of pivoting to, to fill the space of consultation in a way because that has actually come undone at the farm at the moment. Um, that the consultation process that they were having has um, com- broken down. So we've decided we would conduct our own. Um, and so what we're doing is we're holding a public meeting at the Collingwood Library, the Collingwood Town Hall, um, on the 8th of April, which is a Friday, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And we have... Um, Sort mediating services as a facilitator from Peter Clark, who's a very well-known ex-ABC journalist, now um, working as a Melbourne-based writer, webcaster, sort of educator, and as a, a mediator. So he has all the skills necessary to, you know, um, mediate a group of people and facilitate um, a set of questions. And our principal question is going to be, what does the community of Yarra want from a community garden? So we're going to attempt to open up the question of what is a community garden? We're going to ask people that are involved in different community gardens out there, as well as a number of experts on community gardens, to come and talk with us and members of the general public. So we're asking anyone who's interested in being a community gardener or comes from a community garden to come. And together we want to have an open conversation about all the different models of community gardening that there are out there, their pros and cons, how they're managed, what the different models mean for how those um, community gardens are managed, so questions of governance, questions of how you manage waiting lists, questions about how you manage people who don't look after, who don't do their bit, um, questions about autonomy. A lot of this is around does does an individual gardener have autonomy over what they grow, for example, or how they design their plot. A lot of this is about whether a community garden is based on individual allotments or collective allotments. So we want to throw out, open all of those questions and work with members of the community, not just our community, but all of Yarra, so anybody who's interested in a community garden, to together come to some, um, you know, measure the temperature on some of these issues and put together a report. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because what we've got, it appears, is a whole lot of professionals making uh, money out of community and telling the community what community is. Well, that's what we fear is the case. So we kind of want to open up a space where professionals, as as you know, guiding the whole thing uh, out of it, and the community actually has an ability to come together with a facilitator like Peter Clark, who's not involved, hasn't got a stake in a, you know, in either the farm or in us. A bit of a rear guard action is going on. Yeah, absolutely, and and 
basically facilitating a process where the community itself can have a discussion around community gardens, their pros and cons, different models, how they're managed, and together we'll facilitate a process where we can arrive at some conclusions. So we're thinking of using, you know, of actually asking after having various points discussed by the people that we invite who will be from opposing models, or not opposing, but different different models of community gardens. So we want to air different positions. Um, we'll ourselves will be silent, and but we'll ask different questions through Peter and have people able to answer yes, no, indecisive, we'll... We, you know, we'll have flashcards, people. So <laughs> well, Andrea. kind of session on the ABC, but actually even more interactive from the audience. Uh, Andrea, we've, we've run out of time, but uh, can you give uh, the listeners the time and date and place again? Absolutely. We so welcome you all to come. We're really, really wanting to, to have an open conversation about what a community garden is. So it's the Collingwood... Um, library at the Collingwood uh, Town Hall and it's uh, 6.30 to 8.30 on Friday the 8th of April. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thank you for having me Annie. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener. We don't want to frighten you, listener, into diving under the covers and not coming out all day. But sadly, we must report that we've uncovered a gang of traitors who pose a serious threat to our national security. Perfidious practitioners of terrorism and anti-true blue treachery. These indigenous people, and don't forget, these are the same anti-true blue Aussies who describe our great national day as Invasion Day. That, that says it all. Indigenous people who claim the area of the Bootaloo Basin earmarked for a bit of patriotic fracking held a protest on Tuesday claiming it would destroy their country, their water, their sacred sites, their history exposed the very next day when the Minister for Fracking Everything Up, Keith Pitpony, informed us the Beetaloo Basin fracking was a matter of national security. So let's hope those Indigenous traitors wake up to the damage they're causing and put the national interest first, national security first, in the interests of national security, allow their home, their water, their sacred sites, their history be destroyed. In an egregious display of arrogance, the UN of the US of the UN of the World Secretary General accused Trublowozzi of failing miserably in addressing climate change. Quickly put in his place by Keith, who pointed out how we address climate change is a matter for Trublowozzi, that we must protect our national security. Let a little bit of fracking and fossil extraction and related matters of national security generally contribute to our role in continuing Keith's awareness that there is no such thing as climate change anyway. It's our business and nobody else's. Except... Same day, the Minister for Pollution, Susan Lees and Driggs, asked about yet another UN of report about threats to the Great Barrier Reef, said, well, like Keith, this is a matter for true blue Aussie, no business of, uh, 
Well, no, no. Susan said addressing this problem was a matter for all countries. The true blue Aussie couldn't do it on its own. So, so hang on. Simultaneously, climate change is a matter for true blue Aussie and nothing to do with the rest of the world. And climate change is a matter for the rest of the world and nothing to do with true blue Aussie. Can we suggest, with great respect to two honourable people, next time Keith and Susan get together, they also get their act together? And, of course, there's absolutely no relationship, whatever, between fracking, the gas fracked, and the alleged, stress-alleged, bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. On such matters, thousands of schoolchildren who should be in the classroom and not on the streets, not seen and not heard, carried on that they would suffer from climate change long after the men and few women in suits in the fossil boardrooms and in government have gone to the great open cut in the sky. Get back to the classroom and, and leave these matters to Keith and Susan, who will exercise the duty of care to them she knows she doesn't have to exercise. Although in fairness to these children, carrying on about something that is the business of mature, responsible adults like the fossil boardrooms and Keith and Susan, in the classroom they are being educated by a pack of idiots. Revealed by the Minister for Stuffing Up Everything He Touches, Stew Idiot Robert, who said he would give most teachers an F. Bit worrying, but I think he meant fail rather than... Well, anyway, good news, Stu. The week that was will give you a quadruple Z. Workers in South True Blue Aussie were whooping it up as a socialist government took over with the new supremo Peter Melanaskis for profits exciting socialists by promising he would rule for the caring business class. I will be a pro-business leader who will work hand-in-hand -hand with private enterprise Caring business class oligarchs would be invited to meet with Cabinet every month. They will have a seat at the table. Pete Frankty's socialist credentials. And, of course, evil unions will also have a seat at the table, Pete, be invited to meet with Cabinet. That might be a little more difficult. Obviously, it would give our opposition and the caring business class, understandably, the right to attack us for being too close to the union movement. Uh, you don't think some people might think you're being a bit too close to the oligarchs, uh, the caring business class movement. I don't know where that came from. That, that is a ludicrous question. Who ever heard of government being too close to business? After all, we have been elected to govern a capitalist economy. Those working class credentials, of course, come from his background with the Shopping the Workers' Union, or sorry, sorry, Association, which very definitely knows for whom it exists. And thus, that explains why South Tribulosi workers are whooping it up. Now, here's a blast from the past. Stephen Smith, remember him? He was, among other things, minister for being offensive and trained killing in the root the workers, galling hard, root the workers, stab in the back socialist government. I'd forgotten he ever existed, but he re-emerged this week, taking a new socialist job as senior advisor to a U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Company, specialising in advising on matters of trained killing, kicking off his new role attacking evil China for not attacking evil Russia. In other words, a dedicated socialist continuing his relentless devotion to working people, to the socialist cause. And I, I'm sure I can speak for all of us in wishing him luck in his new role, keeping trained killing and filling the coppers of the merchants of death on the agenda.
like our media, including the ABC, which we mentioned last week, turns out a conga line of mainly US of so-called experts on war is peace. One this week, non-US of this time, an academic on war is peace from Prague, asked about the threat of nuclear war, who informed us expertly that Ukraine is not a nuclear power, but NATO is, and evil Russia is. And I thought, my God, this is in-depth stuff. And then he suggested Ukraine made a mistake not retaining nuclear weapons after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And again, I thought, my God, wouldn't that work wonders now? And just perhaps it might, just might, have increased the threat of nuclear war. And in a news report Thursday, the ABC announced breathlessly, it's now official. Evil Russia has committed war crimes. The source? No less reliable than the US of State Department, renowned for its objective views on the world's bad guys, and even more pertinent, if anyone would know all about war crimes, it's the US of and the US of State Department. And there seems little doubt, and I'm saying this seriously, that Russia is committing war crimes, but indeed we might ask which bit of train killing is not a crime. But it's important to understand that when the bad guys bomb and destroy and slaughter civilians, it's a war crime. When the good guys, including True Blue Aussie, carrying out our orders from Washington, bomb and destroy and slaughter civilians, it's collateral damage. So the good guys can never commit a war crime and hence can righteously damn those who do. We remain very, very, very angry with evil China because evil China refuses to criticise evil Russia or not criticise evil Russia with enough enthusiasm. So from big supremo Scuttlebim or Lashson, a.k.a. Scummo, through to Peter Duffer and Anthony Albing Uzi and Penny Left Wing and our mainstream media, we are angry, angry, angry. And this week, Scummo held a meeting with our Indian ally, Naran Dam non-Hindus Modi, claiming we share the same values. Like-minded liberal democracies, free societies that love liberty, freedom and democracy, the rule of law, all those qualities that distinguish democracy from evil, like evil China and evil Russia, which is all very well except... Modi, too, refuses to criticise evil Russia. But in this case, Scummo and Pete and Anthony and Penny and our mainstream media laud him for his values, like, presumably, his silence. Apparently accepting New Zealand's offer to accept no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people rotting on Nauru for years is no longer a backdoor trick, a subterfuge to cut back the true blue Aussie which has treated them so well for all those years. Because now Scummo and Co have agreed to the offer, allowing the illegal boat people to resettle in New Zealand over the next three years. Bet they're hoping truly was he doesn't change his mind again after the election. But Scummo, if, if these people can resettle in New Zealand, why couldn't they resettle right here in True Blue Aussie? Well, obviously, because it's apparent the New Zealand government can win elections without having to resort to exploiting those seeking refuge and treating them like criminals. Finally, in the week that was sport, young Indigenous tennis champ Ash Barty called Game, Set and Match, and good luck to her. 
I think she's one sports person whose sports personship made us all feel good. And her retirement led to people saying, we should all consider quitting when we're ahead. And I thought for most of us, the problem with that is the bit about getting ahead in the first place to be able to quit. Good morning. Come back again. I'm just crazy about you, babe. Yarra City Arts and Umbrella Entertainment present Neighbourhood Watch, a pop-up outdoor cinema showcasing Australian films Friday nights throughout March. Head down to Linear Park, North Fitzroy, and catch free live music and films including The Big Steel, Storm Boy and The Babadook. BYO Picnic Blanket, Snack or Grab Dinner along Nicholson Street for Neighbourhood Watch. To find out more, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. Hello, this is Dan Salton and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're coming to the last half hour of Solidarity Breakfast this Saturday morning and uh, I thought that uh, I would play a very interesting, I think anyway, uh, speech that was given by uh, Michelle O'Neill who is the president of the ACTU and she was talking at the Australia Institute uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's uh, a precursor to Tuesday's uh, budget speech, and it revolves around the artificial uh, uh, deflation of wages in Australia that's been going on for uh, decades now and has contributed to the vast increase in inequality in this country. Uh, it's it's fascinating how the conversation around such issues is diverted to uh, individual uh, uh, actions, uh, not getting a good enough job, uh, all these types of things, when uh, in actual fact we've got a systemic problem in Australia and it's the same kind of systemic problem that we have in relation to homelessness and uh, first home buyers. It's uh, all about uh, lazy capitalism, uh, fat cats uh, lining their pockets at the expense of the uh, general population. Uh, but it's disguised as, uh, as I said, uh, it's the individual's fault that they're not able to climb the mountain. Uh, in actual fact, the greedy people at the top are kicking people's hands off the ledges. But anyway, this particular uh, speech uh, is part of uh, the Australia Institute uh, webinar series. You, this is only the speech. There's uh, other conversation that went on otherwise, and they have an a YouTube uh, channel so you can uh, get the entire uh, piece. But I thought it was worthy of listening, uh, bringing to your attention. In two weeks' time, the federal government will hand down the 2022 budget. It will be Josh Frydenberg's third budget and this government's ninth. The annual speech that accompanies the numbers is an incredibly important part of a government's narrative. The numbers don't speak for themselves. There's always a story that moulds the numbers to create the political narrative. For Liberal Party governments, the Treasurer's story is absolutely essential to constructing the notion 
that they are upholding their commitments to the Australian people because they are good economic managers. And no matter what the numbers actually say, the government's script every budget night will repeat this claim. This is the government's true long-term investment, the story that only they can be trusted with the economy. That story has had incredible political power with real political outcomes that have hurt millions of Australians. Let's revisit for a moment the first LNP budget of this government by then Treasurer Joe Hockey. In his storytelling, he created two enemies, government spending and those people he called the leaners. To counter these enemies, this government's first budget cut funding to our health system, cut funding to education, including 20% cut to higher education, cut the social safety net for the unemployed, the sick, students, pensioners and low-income families. They sacked 16,500 federal public sector workers. And we must not forget who Joe Hockey was speaking about when he demonised the so-called leaners, the majority of everyday Australians, the public sector, essential and frontline workers, people on production lines, services and hospitality workers, all leaners, low-income families, the unemployed, the sick, those with disabilities, pensioners, all leaners. The government's self-nominating good economic management has hurt all these people, as if hurting people and workers is good for the economy. The pandemic revealed that this rhetoric's not only empty and harmful, but extremely poor economic management. As Jim Stanford from the Australian Institute's own Centre for Future Work has so eloquently written, the pandemic showed the Australian public who really delivers value in the economy. And it's not the smart decisions of CEOs or politicians creating investor confidence. It's people, it's workers. As our nation was put into lockdown to cope with the public health emergency, who kept us going and who stayed at work to keep us safe? Government workers, essential frontline and retail staff. Workers kept our economy going and workers deliver real value. The pandemic also showed us economic management that works for the people and the nation. Not even this LNP government could resist the actual solutions to the economic crisis wrought by the pandemic and demanded by nearly everyone. Solutions like direct support for jobs wages and leave entitlements through hard times to keep money flowing in the economy and keep people safe. And for the recovery, if we want a recovery for all and not just for some, it's very clear that government-led interventions and investments are essential. There's another inconvenient number at the heart of every budget this government has delivered that puts a hole in their claim to be trusted on economic management. From Joe Hockey to Josh Frydenberg, from Tony Abbott to Scott Morrison, every single budget has predicted that wage growth is just around the corner. And every year under this government, Australians have instead suffered record low wage growth. After nine years of coalition rule, Australian wages are way too low and the problem is getting worse. The government and their decisions have baked low wage growth into Australia's economy. 
to use language made famous by Matthias Kuhlmann, the finance minister at the, the time, to describe their design, low wages is a design feature of the labour market. Whether times are good or times are bad, whether unemployment is low or unemployment is high, wages have been growing too slowly. Wages are too low for Australian households to achieve a decent, stable standard of living. They are too low to support the consumer spending we need to continue recovering from the recession. And now they are way too low to keep up with accelerating inflation. They have suppressed wages in the public sector. Every year they've failed to support improvements in the minimum wage. They've demonised workers and their unions trying to bargain for better wages. They've changed the laws so that casualising the workforce is easier for employers and they've stripped away rights for workers. This is the context we must judge Josh Frydenberg's third budget on. In 2021, workers suffered the biggest pay cut in real terms that we've seen in over 20 years. As inflation has outstripped wages growth, a worker on the average income of $68,000 has effectively had an $832 pay cut. $832 pay cut. That's the average. But shockingly, it's actually worse for the workers who've been on the front line keeping the country going through the, pandem the pandemic. Full-time workers in healthcare and social support have had their pay effectively cut by $967 last year. For those in transport, postal and warehousing, risking their health and safety to keep the nation running, they lost an eye-watering $1,497. Education and training workers lost $1,362. And admin and support services went backwards by $1,185. Peer beneath the inflation figures, and there's a similar story of extreme price rises hurting those who can least afford them. Petrol is grabbing the headlines, but family budgets are being hit from all sides. Childcare costs went up 6.5% last year, rising nearly three times faster than wages. And it's risen by even more than that in seven out of the past 10 years. Rents are even worse, surging 9% last year, with experts predicting they'll go even higher this year. The cost of groceries is also outpacing sluggish wage growth. We've had nearly a decade of record low wage growth and nearly a decade of this coalition government. That's no coincidence. This is an Australian problem, not a global problem. Until 2013, Wages in Australia were growing faster than the average in other industrial countries. Since then, they've almost ground to a halt, growing less than one third as fast in real time as, sorry, in real terms as the OECD average. The government has cheered on cuts to penalty rates. They walked away from their own laws to tackle wage theft. They don't support increases to the minimum wage and they are not supporting aged care workers in their current fight for better wages. They've heavily capped the pay of their own workforce, the Commonwealth Public Service, and they've made it easier for employers to casualise staff. 
Insecure work is at the heart of this problem. To understand why, let's take a deeper dive into what's going on in Australian workplaces. The official unemployment rate of 4.2% is good news on the face of it. However, unemployment has mostly declined because of the impact of stimulus spending during the pandemic, combined with lower labour supply resulting from our closed borders. Morrison originally opposed JobKeeper, but unions fought for and won it. That program, combined with the coronavirus supplement and other income supports, was vital in preventing a much worse recession. However, the government did not attach adequate conditions to those programs to stop rorts and eliminated them far too soon. And even this encouraging unemployment rate is a poor measure for telling us what's really going on in the world of work. Firstly, in January, we still had close to 1 million people who wanted more hours but couldn't get them. This is supposedly at the height of employers being desperate for more workers in some sectors. Secondly, there are nearly another million people marginally attached to the labour force. That means they're able to work but were discouraged from looking the day they answered the survey. Thirdly, during Omicron, record numbers of people were officially employed but were unable to work, either through illness, looking after others, or being forced to isolate. We estimate that 350,000 workers couldn't work at all and a further 150,000 had to cut back on hours in January. 160 million hours of work were lost. A huge hit to workers' pay packets, all because of a let it rip attitude to the virus led by the federal government. Add all these together and nearly 3 million Australians either couldn't work or weren't getting enough hours. Another 2.4 million workers are casual with no right to get a shift tomorrow. Millions more are on labour hire, fixed term or sham contracting arrangements, minimum hours part-time contracts, are gig workers or suffering under other corporate strategies to cut their wages. Qantas is currently threatening their flight attendants with a staggering $27,000 pay cut by seeking to terminate their enterprise agreement. We also learned last week that a record number of Australians, 867,000, are now forced to work more than one job just to make ends meet. If you are one of these people, bargaining for a pay increase is difficult when your boss and cuts can so easily cut your hours or conditions. It's even harder if you're a woman. You're more likely to be in insecure work. You'll be paid $483.30 a week on average, less than a man, and you will receive little support to deal with your unequal share of caring responsibilities. We have some of the highest childcare costs in the developed world and the second worst paid parental leave scheme in the OECD. We won't solve our wage crisis in this country without solving our insecure work crisis. And the only thing Scott Morrison has done is to make it worse. Last year, his government passed laws making it far easy for, easier for an employer to call someone a casual, regardless of their actual working relationship. So apart from his own and the Prime Minister's, whose job will be front of mind for Josh Frydenberg as he does the numbers for his third budget? 
there'll be two key things we'll be watching for on budget night. Firstly, who will this budget deliver for? Frances is a 54-year-old part-time worker in an aged care centre in Brisbane. She loves her job, but she only makes $21.90 an hour and lives week to week. She's often scared about how she'll pay her bills, earning only about $550 a week. She can't even afford to buy a new work uniform that she needs. Her pay has only gone up 80 cents an hour since she first started working at the centre almost five years ago while the cost of living has significantly increased. She's only been able to save about $80,000 in super, so is terrified about retirement. Her aged care centre is understaffed in every area, often leaving her to do work with aged care residents, like dressing them, helping them to be mobile around the centre, that she's not qualified and certainly not paid for. Many of her colleagues, nearly all women, have left the centre because of burnout and insecure hours and wages. Frances wishes she could be full-time, but her employer continues to cut costs and use labour hire or just not roster on enough staff. She's never taken the two breaks she's entitled to on a shift because there just aren't enough staff. What will Frydenberg's budget deliver for Frances? Or is she just one of the Liberal Party leaners? Secondly, we must be all on alert for the budget fudges. If the Morrison government lives up to expectations, this budget won't be about backing workers like Francis, but will be aimed at buying votes and cauterising their wounds before an election. Here's our top five budget fudges that we'll be looking out for. First, they'll announce the Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, a small amount of funding for an area they've already made big cuts to. For example, the Morrison government has presided over an aged care sector urgently needing an extra $10 billion a year, according to the Royal Commission. Yet last year, Frydenberg announced a fraction of that. Even then, an aged care worker like Francis got none of it. Given the crisis in the sector is deeper than ever, expect another piecemeal announcement. Second, there'll be the re-gifting, trying to get more headlines off the same announcement. How many times do the same road projects get announced again and again? Tony Abbott announced federal funding for Adelaide's North-South Corridor way back in 2013. And last month, Morrison announced, yep, funding for Adelaide's North-South Corridor. Third, they'll announce the smoke and mirrors, things that just won't happen. Remember the Emergency Relief Fund. $4.7 billion announced two years ago and almost none of it spent. Are the floodwaters not high enough yet? Fourth, the barrels of pork that Morrison government has made an art form of. Get ready for more funds that let them splash, splash cash on marginal seats. Remember sports rorts or the car parks that haven't ever been built. Fifth, the too little, too late. Token announcements to cauterise issues that risk costing them seats. Take our energy transition. They've spent most of the last nine years blocking progress, denying the effect of climate change, fighting amongst themselves, or taking credit for the heavy lifting done by states and industry. 
Their low emissions technology roadmap last year was so small, misdirected and overview, that it's a roadmap towards staying in last place in the global race to become a clean energy superpower. Enough of their tricks though. What do workers want to see on the 29th of March? Fundamentally, it's measures that support working people to realise their potential. That is what sustainable economic growth depends on and should be all about. Let me take you through five of them briefly. First up, we need an end to the crisis of insecure work and cost of living. Changes to the laws to stop the many ways that employers turn secure jobs into insecure ones. A federal government prepared to argue that our national minimum wage should be a living wage and lifting pay cuts, caps in the public sector. Secondly, investing in the care economy, provide free universal early childhood education and care and deliver fair and equal pay for those workers, nearly all women, nearly all underpaid and overworked, who educate our youngest and care for our elderly. Universal good quality childcare takes tremendous pressure of women shouldering most of the care burden. This measure alone is a tremendous boost to national productivity, an estimated $11 billion per year, because it allows those women to do more paid work if they choose. It also gives our youngest the very best possible start in life. Thirdly, invest now in good jobs to future-proof our country. Last year, we worked with the Business Council of Australia, ACF and WWF on a plan to make Australia a clean energy export superpower. With enough ambition and collaboration, we could create nearly 400,000 good jobs and $89 billion in value by 2040. We can also lower energy prices and make a safer climate. Nearly everyone is ready to play their part in delivering this if we have a federal government that will listen and act. Fourthly, rebuilding our TAFE and skills system, reverse the Morrison government legacy of severe funding cuts and neglect of TAFE and our vocational education and training system. And finally, and I can't believe we still have to say this, but we need all 55 of the Respect at Work recommendations implemented and 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave for all. But we will keep saying this and keep fighting for this until all women get the safety, respect and equity they deserve. I hope all of this has armed you for budget night in two weeks time. Will it be another budget of buying votes or backing workers? I'm guessing we'll see a tired, out-of-touch government again try to reinvent itself with some big promises. But the changes that are desperately needed for a better, fairer economy and society, don't hold your breath. The good news is that the Australian public will get to have a say on what they believe and what they think is important less than six weeks after that. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, that was uh, Michelle O'Neill. She was talking at a Australia Institute webinar. And as I said, uh, you can get the entire event on their YouTube channel. Uh, that was just the speech, but uh, a nice pithy piece before the uh, federal budget. Uh, today we talked uh, to uh, 
Angelo from the uh, Italian Cultural Institute about the Pasolini uh, retrospective that's coming up April and May at the Astor Cinema. Very interesting stuff. We spoke to Vicky Wade about a fantastic film called Take Heart. Uh, you can go online and uh, find out about... Uh, uh, possible screenings amongst your community. Uh, Take Heart is the name of the film. It's about a rheumatic heart disease and how it's affecting Indigenous Australians, uh, First Nations Australians. Uh, we followed that with an update on the uh, April 8th meeting being held at the uh, uh, Collingwood uh, Library around uh, community gardens uh, at 6.30 and uh, we followed that up with uh, Michelle O'Neill and of course Kevin's uh, uh, lowdown on the past week. This is the week that was. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and uh, we'll go out with f- 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 Fashion uh, by Handheld. <laughs> been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.